What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Galver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of SB Nation. And Michael, we've got a little diversion uh, on this episode, don't we? Because you wrote an interesting piece uh, for SB Nation this week about almost like a formulaic, algorithmic uh, viewpoint on what the 10 most exciting games of the 2019-20 NBA season were. Um, and you you talk to a company in Palo Alto, which I think is always very important. If you're an upstart company, you at least get a P.O. box in Palo Alto so you can say you're from Palo Alto. It really adds <laughs> just to the overall vibe of everything, gives you an extra degree of legitimacy. Uh, but you talk to this company that was trying to basically you know, put these games into a framework and say these were literally the best games possible. I imagine they were looking at things like lead changes and scoring outbursts and everything else, but you can walk us through that. Um, Michael, first of all, two questions. What was it like working on this piece, and what did you learn from your experience talking to this company? And second of all, do you expect us to take you seriously, given that the resulting list that you and this company came up with just coincidentally happened to have Jason Tatum in the number one spot? I mean, come on, Michael. Uh, yeah, you're on to me. Thuz is my shell company, uh, and I've been outed here on the Open Floor podcast. Uh no, I mean, it, this was no, so a lot of fun. Reporting about yourself <laughs> and your direct family members is called a conflict of interest, especially if you don't disclose it, Michael. So you're really on shaky ethical ground here. If there was a time to be on shaky ethical ground, I think right now is the time to do it. So uh, I uh, I really enjoyed doing this piece. Um, first of all, as you said, uh you know, if you are located in Palo Alto, it does not hurt to uh, to disclose that fact. It just totally uh, adds to your reputation. So this company, Thuz Sports, um, I mean, basically what they do primarily is work with video highlights, and they it's kind of like a B two B operation, and they package highlights for media companies and uh, different corporations that would want that sort of thing. It was a little confusing to be honest with you i didn't really understand that whole part of it but well that's, that's also their... perfectly on brand for palo alto like you're not really supposed to understand the pitch <laughs> you know i'm sure you've seen silicon valley the television show i mean that you're, you're right in line we do a lot of things you can't understand them is just perfectly how it's supposed to go so this company is sounding great already right so but what's really cool about them is they have all this metadata and uh, they work with, uh, or they, I guess they, they, they didn't create the NBC score app, but they do supplement it with a ton of information. And what they try to do is just, I mean, the company was founded to, uh, help fans find out what the best sporting events are. So they tried to create this algorithm that would, um, uh, basically let everyone know which games are going to be good before they actually take place. And then for the purpose of this article, it's obviously retroactive uh, with no games being played right now. They've looked at how their algorithm kind of was uh, utilized in-game for every single game uh, in the NBA season, and that's how we kind of came to the top 10 here. So what are they prioritizing in terms of what's a good game? Is it hard fought? Is it high scoring? Is it nip and tuck back and forth? Is it one player has a 60-point game? I mean, what are their priorities when they're saying what's a good game? Because I imagine that's 
somewhat subjective, right? Like I don't necessarily think every 129, 128 game is great. Um, and I, you know, sometimes think that, you know, games where a guy might have a huge scoring outburst, but they win by 20, that one actually might stick with me because, you know, maybe he accomplished something crazy, like a certain number of, of record number of threes. Like remember when Clay Thompson just destroyed the Chicago Bulls uh, with just an insane barrage of three pointers? Uh, that sure. one would be memorable and one that I would want to go back, but I imagine it might struggle by this algorithm. Am I right? No, so they do factor in what they call novelty. So the example that they gave was Devin Booker, your favorite player of all time. Oh God! When he scored when he scored seventy points against the Boston Celtics, like that game gets a huge boost because it's something that is incredibly rare and we don't see you know every so often. So um, James Harden, who appears on this list quite a bit. I mean, he's usually here because he's doing something that not a lot of players do. It could be like his fourth or fifth straight 50-point game or something like that. So novelty plays a part. Pace, which, you know, would, you know, I guess translate to a higher score, is also a factor. And then they have historical content. What about like fights or punches or flagrant fouls or or technical (laughs) fouls? Are we getting any of that stuff in or no? Is that something that you enjoy watching when you're, when you're watching a basketball game, Ben? Well, I've just been going back and watching a lot of Jordan games from like the 80s and <laughs> 90s here over the last week. And there's just some random dust-ups that add to the enjoyment. That's all. I'm just wondering if they if they care about that stuff or if we're really just watching you know popcorn stats like Devin Booker. By the way, can we put his record <laughs> on the all-time scoring list? Can we make a separate scoring list and just call it novelty and maybe just take him off so he doesn't have 70 and Jordan has 69 on the high scores? I don't know. Just a thought. You are being incredibly petty right now. Um, but so, so some other factors uh, that they that they use are, you know, parity and kind of betting odds. And so what are the expectations heading in? Uh, momentum shifts. So there was a game on this list between the – uh, Denver Nuggets and the Philadelphia 76ers, where Denver came back from like 20 down in the fourth quarter and won with a uh, uh, a game winner from Nikola Jokic. So that kind of thing also matters. But then the last factor that I found really interesting was uh, social buzz, because the whole point of this mm. company is typically during a game, you know, uh, they have deals with TiVo and with Dish Network. So when you're watching on your guide, It'll have a score, either an in-game score or a pre-game score, to let you know how attractive this particular game is. And so they factor in basically like NBA Twitter is how it was described to me. So just conversa- who's what, what teams and what games are kind of spurring the biggest conversation online, which is also a factor and try to and just kind of is in this whole algorithm to try to figure out and so, spit out, which is the most entertaining game. That's fascinating and brilliant. So two thoughts. First of all, the idea of using the betting odds is smart because if you get a huge upset, you know, some team you didn't expect to beat a favorite, that does make the game, you know, quite a bit more interesting and it does make mm-hmm. you kind of perk up. Even if both teams aren't great, you know, even if one team's a lottery team, I mean, that can that can change the tenor of a game. Second of all, everything makes sense now because anytime Tatum does anything, <laughs> anything, we get 5,000 green beer Boston Celtics fans just, just paying constant tribute to him over the course of these games, just game after game after game. 
So this makes more sense why he's, he, he fared so well. It's just the social bias of the uh, Celtics Twitter mob <laughs> shining through in their data. All right, with that, uh, with that prelude, Michael, give me the top five games as judged by Thuz, the Palo Alto company. Okay, so first, number five, uh, February 23rd, 2020, the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers won by two. And this is, uh, I guess, the first instance of Jason Tatum's just spellbounding, uh, incredible everything about his game that it makes its appearance on this list. Uh, he scored 41 points in this game and you know, the Lakers did in fact win by two. Oh, there you, there you go. There, here comes the lead shining through the clouds. Oh, the Lakers won. Okay. I buried it a little bit, but, uh, I think one of, I think we actually talked about this game right after it happened because it was incredible. And, uh, LeBron had, kind of the last laugh in this one where he hit this turnaround over Jalen Brown and it kind of made him look like his little brother um, to basically win the game. Uh, so it was just a really fun game between two uh, uh, historic franchises, and that also factors into the, the algorithm, which teams are playing. And if it's a rivalry like this, it gets a little bit of a bump. That is uh, an indisputable top five game for the season for me. Uh, LeBron just punking your guy Jalen Brown late down the stretch, <laughs> uh, erasing all of Jason Tatum's hard work in that game. No, I'm kidding. It was a great game, back and forth. I mean, it is the type of game I would expect an algorithm to like, right? Because it was very tense, like you're saying, two high-profile teams, big moments late. Um, you know, I'm sure they're factoring some of that stuff in. And then also just like great individual performances as well. So no arguments from me. They're doing pretty well so far uh, with number five. Uh, what's number four? Okay, so number four, I think everyone listening will remember pretty vividly. Uh, it came on December 3rd, 2019. It was the Houston Rockets 133, the San Antonio Spurs 135. And what really stands out in this game, besides the fact that it went to overtime, was James Harden dunked a ball, and the referees said that he did not dunk a ball. So the, the Houston Rockets, after they lost, ended up trying to protest the game, which they eventually were unsuccessful with. But that's kind of the uh, the big, like most memorable part of this game. But well, can you, I mean, if can you, you just you imagine being one of these guys, programmers, and trying to calculate the amount of whining out of Houston during and after that game about that vote. I mean, it went on for three weeks. They probably had to change their formula <laughs> to, to expand the the scope of the social buzz category because there was whining about that protest for weeks. Yeah, it was breaking records. Uh, I think it finished with a higher score than Game 7 of the 2016 Finals <laughs> in their database. So, yeah, this one was a little overboard. But it was uh, it was pretty memorable. I mean, Harden went 24 for 24 from the free throw line, which also adds to like, kind of the novelty aspect. And oh, yeah. Lonnie Walker. And really fun to watch, ahead. too. I know a lot of fans are just hoping to watch thrilling. 24 three free throws from thrilling. James Harden. <laughs> just a thrilling performance by him all around. Um, so that's that's number four um so i'll just add i would have forgotten about this one if i was making my list because i wasn't there and i had to catch up on it late i was doing something else during that game 
But I actually think this shows the value of the algorithm again, because if you're saying like, what were the quirkiest, you know, like most novelty of that, that phrase, or even just like the biggest social media eruptions, that one's definitely on the list. I mean, it was weird. Everyone had a take and everyone was arguing that take into the ground for like a week and a half straight. So I've got to, I've got to tip my hat to Thuz. I was skeptical, especially when I saw how regularly Tatum was on your list, but so far so good. All right, what's number three? So number three, I actually forgot about entirely before I, I, I saw this list. And I'm just calling it the Furkan Korkmaz game. He hit a buzzer beater against the Portland Trailblazers way back in early November to give them a one-point win. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that why this game ranks so high is uh, obviously there was a buzzer beater, which is people like seeing buzzer beaters, but it came right after Anthony Simons of the Blazers hit his own go-ahead three with 2.2 seconds left. So when you have basically two buzzer beaters in one game, I would imagine that that is why it was it, it ranked so highly. Yeah, and that lines up when you're watching a game like that. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it's funny that both those teams back in early November were probably really feeling themselves after those shots, right? Like Simons hits mm-hmm. it, and you can talk to yourself into Simons being like, oh, the third star developing for Portland. This is great because it's only like two weeks into the season. And then Philly answers with the road win. I'm not sure they've won a road game maybe since this. Um, is that possible? No, they haven't. I just looked it up. <laughs> so um, they were probably feeling better about themselves in November than they are now. I I mean, not to trying to be like recency bias, Michael, but is this one really on the list? I mean, it's it's interesting, but couldn't you watch that for 15 seconds? You don't have to necessarily watch the whole game. No, I agree. I If I was making a list based on what I think is most entertaining, I probably, as I said, I completely forgot about this one, so it would not have cracked my list. And yeah, also like Furkan Korkmaz hitting the shot. I mean, come on. Yeah, um, back to the drawing board, dorks. All right, what's number two? <laughs> <laughs> so number two actually has some elements of number three in it. It was on February 9th. Uh, Utah Jazz 114, Houston Rockets 113, and like it's really not hard to understand why this ranks so highly. Um, it ended with Boyan Bogdanovich hitting, I think, one of the most impressive buzzer beaters I've ever seen. Just like PJ Tucker and James Harden were wrapped on him. Perfect contests from both of them. He hits it barely being able to see the basket from like 25 feet, even deeper than that, and just nails it and the Jazz win. So that one was, I mean, pretty exciting. And it also came right after P.J. Tucker hit a corner three with a couple seconds left uh, that made it seem like the the, the Rockets were going to win. So I, I totally get why this is on the list here for sure i mean i think we're seeing a, a little bias right or a little tendency with their program is like the, the super mm-hmm. late game action especially in tight games um is getting a big time bump from them you know if i'm thinking back to like memorable rockets games though and i know this is going to be dangerous like throwing this one at you but i would even put the rocket celtics game that went to that crazy overtime with the missed free throw and the scramble and the three-pointer and like the turnovers late from harden and just like that chaos where russ saved the day in overtime i would even say that game was more memorable and a better watch than the jazz game am i crazy for that 
No, you're not, but as you know, or maybe you don't remember, Jason Tatum didn't really play particularly well in that oh, one, so we had to cross it off the list. Yeah, it didn't make it. That's true, because the social buzz side, the <laughs> Celtics fans weren't saying anything for the entire game until like that 15-second uh, segment where it seemed like they might be able to pull it out there, uh, and then Houston broke their heart. Um, so no disrespect to the Jazz Rockets game. Incredible shot, like you're saying. You know, when, when I was first starting as a writer, I would actually like very, very carefully track the best buzzer beaters every single season. And I would have like my own personal ranking spreadsheet um, that I would release at the end of the season. I'm sure absolutely no one cared. And then pretty soon, like, you know, NBA.com and, and all those guys came along and just made video mixes and, and basically like made me completely irrelevant. But, I mean, that Bohan one would have been very, very, very high on my list. But, again, does that translate to the whole game? That's my question. All right, what is their number one game um, of the season, according to uh, this company? Yeah, so number one was, <laughs> you guessed it, uh, Jason Tatum's Boston Celtics, 141. Kawhi Leonard's Los Angeles Clippers, 133. This was the last game before All-Star Weekend, and so I think, you know, it went into double overtime, and it was Jason Tatum's coming out party, and, you know, him and Kawhi were going toe-to-toe, and I just think everyone around the NBA, from what I remember watching it in my hotel room in Chicago, and then just also being on Twitter at the same time, like, everyone was watching this, who cares about the NBA, and it was an awesome game, it had awesome moments, uh, and it's memorable just because it was kind of just the crowning uh, event for Jason Tatum going toe to toe with someone who is as accomplished and as incredible on the defensive end as Kawhi Leonard and really holding his own. So, uh, I when I before this whole thing even started, if you were to ask me what the most entertaining game was of the season so far, this would have been the number one choice for me. Very interesting. Well, I'm glad that you said Tatum's crowning achievement came before the All Star break, so I didn't have to. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, low blow. Um, It's way up there. You're right. So usually everyone says like the game before the All-Star weekend, everybody's already kind of checked out their minds in Cancun. That was not really the case here, as you mentioned. And the fact that everybody's either in transit to All-Star weekend or has already arrived there, it does actually kind of help turn it into a showcase in a weird way. So it's almost like we have to flip that old logic of like nobody cares about the game before the All-Star weekend. And maybe just rethink it or, or um, reconsider it. I have no problem with it being on the list. Uh, I'm curious, though, for you personally, were there any other games that you thought should have been either higher into that top five? Like one that they had in their top ten that wasn't in their top five uh, was a game that I was at was actually Rockets Clippers, where they basically dared Westbrook to shoot a three at the end and he couldn't do mm-hmm. it. And it was just super tense. It was the first time we had seen those four stars on the court together, uh, at least in L.A. And, you know, you have the Westbrook going to Houston factor, the Paul George uh, going to the Clippers factor, hanging over everything. You've got the Clippers going small late with that lineup, which was super interesting. Like, for me, that was really, really high on my list. I mean, my mind went straight there because we had the whole conversation, you know, coming out of that game about, Harden being doubled, you know, at midcourt, mm-hmm. and he's frustrated by that. Why is he getting so much attention? You know, it, it pretty much set the stage for the Clint Capella trade because there wasn't enough room, and Westbrook wasn't really able to do everything that he needed to do. So for me, that one needed to be in the mix. And then also, 
I think the first Giannis game where he crowned himself, um, when they got the Bucks got the win over the Lakers, that one's got to be on this list somewhere because that was such a crazy, audacious thing to do for him to crown himself in front of LeBron while LeBron's still leading the best team in the Western Conference and you know still regarded uh, as highly as he is. Um, for him to just kind of like directly challenge his major peer. Uh, I mean, that's to me the most memorable moment of the, the single moment of the entire season. And of course, you know, LeBron didn't forget it. And when the Lakers beat the Bucks, like the, his teammates were crowning him as well. So for me, that first shot, you know, in a potential finals preview, Lakers Bucks there, that one had to be on there too. No, I, I, I think it's really interesting. I agree with you about the Giannis LeBron game, but it's like, that game, if you recall, wasn't like super close, particularly down the stretch. I mean, Giannis well, was hitting threes. So and that's also my beef with this thing. I, I think that their formula favors the close game thing, maybe just a little bit too much, right? And I'm not sure there's a way to quantify which game isn't close, is good, and which game is, is bad. Uh, you know what I mean? But like, there's a lot of times for me, memorable games could be someone just going absolutely nuts or a team hitting all you know, on all cylinders. Like another game I always go back to would be like the 2014 Finals Spurs game three, where they have 71 in the first half and the Miami Heat are looking around like, what the heck just hit us? And that was basically the end of that series. Um, Mm -hmm. I look at that game as like one of the most memorable games I've ever attended in my life. And San Antonio won by so much that I went down on the court after the game to take a picture of the net. And I was like, hey, it's on fire. We should send it to Springfield. (laughs) Like, I mean, it was that kind of a moment, right? So... I don't know how to quantify that. And that might be the problem that they're facing is there is no way to quantify it. But I don't know if we need to be fixating on these random games that come down the two buzzer beaters in the last three seconds. Like, I'm not sure that's really how we need to define or use as the, the major framework for what is a good game. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. I, th- I just think you're injecting your own bias, which as you should, because th- it's your opinion on something that is inherently subjective. Come on, so, Michael, we got the two of the top three best players subjectively in the league going head to head with one of them <laughs> trying to subjectively punk the other one by claiming his crown after he's tattooed the word king on his body as a teenager. That seems pretty subjective to me as a big moment. Come on. It, it was a it was a good game. It was a good game. I don't know what the final score was on that one because all these games get rated zero to one hundred. I'm sure it was very high though because as you, I mean, I remember it was uh, it was a TNT Thursday night game, I believe, and everyone was super super pumped getting ready for it, and so I'm sure the social buzz factored in and all that, and that's try that's what they're trying to. Like that element, trying to quantify that sort of thing is just really tricky. Um, but I'm sure it was, I'm sure it ranked high. I'm well, sure it did. All I know is this it was the first game that anybody watched all year because like the ratings were terrible <laughs> until that game. And they sent out an entire press releases about how many people watched that game because they were facing all the heat about the poor early season uh, TV ratings. But anyway, I digress. I gave you the ones that I wanted. I wanted that one. I wanted the Clippers Rockets higher. And then I definitely wanted. Celtics Rockets because that game was just nuts you know down the stretch what what other games did you have on your list yeah I have a few um I was shocked that there were no Lakers Clippers games on this list I mean I know they played 
uh, in on opening night. And so, you know, you kind of throw away what happens on opening night. Everyone's trying to get familiar with one another. Everyone's new. And no, um, and no Paul George, which... Uh, right, which, and no Paul George. Which takes out a layer for sure. Because I thought about those two. Uh, which of the three would you have nominated if you could pick one? The Christmas Day game was terrific, I thought. Um I mean, Kawhi, LeBron going head-to-head down the stretch. Uh, but then, I mean, the third one was also, like, terrific just because we, we again, we had LeBron and Kawhi defending one another, Kawhi defending Anthony Davis at stretches. And for me, just as someone who really is fascinated by X and O's and strategy, watching those teams kind of size each other up and figure out, hey, especially in the third one, hey, how are we going to attack Lou Williams? Are we going to use his guy to come screen for LeBron on every possession down the stretch? So I like that stuff fascinates me and it really sticks in my brain when I think back to it. So those games, I was a little surprised, especially because they were super competitive too. Um, And you would think that uh, that would factor in no, and kind of push them over the top. Michael, you completely convinced me. Uh, Lakers, Clippers, Christmas needs to be top five. There's no question. Um, all right, what, we've got like seven nominations for the top five at this point, but that one does I know, need, it's tough. That one needs to be in there. Uh, any others? Yeah, um, this is kind of a random one, but Giannis scored 50 points against the Utah Jazz. And Rudy Gobert did not play in that game, but it was super close going down to the final possession with Donovan Mitchell getting his shot blocked at the basket by Brooke Lopez. And I just, like, this season, when you kind of think back to it years from now, you're going to think back to Giannis. And we do have an impressive Giannis game in the top 10. His, his, uh, I think he scored 48 against the Dallas Mavericks on the night that their uh, 18-game win streak was snapped. But dropping 50 in a win, I mean, in a close game, that should probably have cracked this list, don't you think? Uh, it's possible, yeah. I mean, I, I go back to more of that, that signature Lakers game if I'm going to only pick one for Giannis, but mm-hmm. it has been a blur for him, and he's been so dominant and hasn't played as many minutes that that's working against him, you know, because if he's icing his knees for the fourth quarter, you know, that game is not going to be memorable. It's kind of a similar thing that people used to say about like the 2016-17 uh, Warriors era, where like, are they really that fun to watch if they win every game midway through the third quarter? And it's like, I would always defend them and say, yeah, like their style of play is brilliant. Who cares if it's blowouts or whatever? But, you know, it's also at the same time, you can't really blame people for going home when Steph's not playing the last, you know, 15 minutes of the game. So um, there's a, a little bit of a balance there. Here's a tricky one for you, Michael. What about Lakers, Blazers, the Kobe Bryant tribute? Because if we're trying to tell the story of this season, mm-hmm. isn't that the single most memorable game of all of them? I mean, not necessarily for the on-court stuff, but just the scene, the emotion. Like if I had to, of every game that I went to this year, that game is in its own category, right? Above everything else. And I saw a lot of awesome Lakers and a lot of awesome Clippers games this year. Uh, to me, though, that one still stands up. And another one that actually, by the way, we should put on here, I would say would be Zion's debut, right? I mean, wasn't that third quarter? I, I Yeah, I have that I have that on my list. Okay, we'll come back to that one. But what would you do with the Kobe Bryant tribute game in terms of this list? Do you just say disqualified, there's too much going on there, it's kind of in its own category? Uh, because Damian Lillard was also sensational in that game down the stretch. I mean, it was a, a pretty entertaining fourth quarter as well. Um, what do you think? You know, it's really strange. I went back and I watched that game, or I watched the the just the highlights for this pod, 
and I was honestly not like 100% certain who won the game. Uh, for me, when I think back on that night, it is one like just 100% LeBron speaking beforehand. That's all I really think about. So there's really no way to, to quantify that into something like this, obviously. And you can't quantify emotion and why something like that would stick with you. So in terms of it being memorable uh, as an event and as a night, I think it's for sure up there. But like, I completely forgot on it. I mean, you were there, so it's a little bit different. But I completely forgot that Dame scored 48 and that Anthony Davis had 37 and 15 and that LeBron almost had a triple double. Um, uh, Like I just the, the what happened on the court, not to mention the fact that you know, it wasn't really that close down the stretch compared to some of the other ones on here. I, I I understand why it didn't make this list. And to be honest, like I probably wouldn't have it on my own, just subjectively speaking. I think it should be number one personally, but I also like that you just challenged <laughs> all the Palo Alto engineers out there. You said as a fact, you can't quantify emotion. And I hope those guys took that as a challenge and they're going to come back in a year or two and say, okay, Michael, oh, Jesus, <laughs> uh, we, we figured out how to quantify it. All right. You mentioned that you had the Zion uh, second half explosion in his debut. I mean, it was undercut a little bit by the way that game ended though, right? Where he, mm-hmm. he's on the bench yeah. watching and it was pretty frustrating for all of us you know zion uh uh, zion nerdy fanboys uh to not be able to watch him close that thing out but for a a stretch of a game like if we were doing this as quarters does he have the number one quarter oh i mean sure (laughs) yeah uh we talked about that right after it happened and i still can't even believe what i saw him just like hitting those threes his first time in an NBA game, he's not even a good three-point shooter. And since then, I, I think he's made, I'm looking it up literally right now, he's made two threes since he made those four in a row, which is, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, you know, they always tell you, like, when you're isolated or quarantined, like, your mind starts to go crazy places, you might start to lose it a little bit. Wasn't the story about the yellow wallpaper about that as well? Um this is how I feel about Zion. The further that I get into the quarantine, the less that I believe he's a real person, even though I've talked to him, watched him play, and you know tracked his development for like five straight years. He just feel at this point, two weeks into the quarantine, he feels like a figment of my imagination. <laughs> yeah, that's that is. Uh, I hope you see a doctor about that, but uh, <laughs> I I kind of get where you're coming from. Uh, yeah, he was ridiculous that night. He played 18 minutes, which is still a bummer. And I understand why they didn't want to play him down the stretch and in the fourth really late when they could have won. Just because obviously you want 15 years of Zion was more important than than winning that one game, which they, they lost. Um, but yeah, just a total freak of nature. And his debut, I'll remember for the rest of my life. Well, Michael, thanks for guiding us through that. Everybody can check out your whole list at SBNation.com. It's fun. Uh, it's got some video clips of each game, and it will take you down memory lane. If you're looking for stuff to do in the in the uh, League Pass archives, that's a great place to start. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. 
Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right, Michael, we got some great questions from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Let's try to get through a bunch of these in sort of rapid-fire succession here. Kevin writes, here's a weird question. You guys were talking about Quinn Snyder and how he may never actually sleep during the season, and it totally tracked. But right now, with the hiatus, how much preparation and coach stuff can he actually be doing? He and everyone else doesn't know if they have something to prepare for, let alone what they have to prepare for. So if we take that idea to its unnatural conclusion, is it insane to think that someone, an either a coach or a player, is sitting at home, taking stock of what's important in their life, realizing how much money they have, feeling the lack of pressure in this unexpected downtime, and deciding to just walk away from basketball? That's not crazy, right? So Kevin wants to know if we're going to see a rash of retirements, Michael, because of this disruption to the schedule. Phenomenal, fascinating question. What do you think? I think it's it is an interesting question. I I personally do not see it. I mean, people get into basketball because they love basketball. There are coaches who have been fired or who haven't been able to get an offer that they like who kind of just talk about how much they miss the experience of of coaching a team. I mean, Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson still interview for jobs. They still have their names come up in rumors all the time because they want to be a part of that competitive environment. I mean, even Tom Thibodeau went on TV to I guess, analyze a few games or whatever he did um, because he wants to keep his name out there and his face in people's minds. Yeah, and Michael, um, I just put a finer point on it. You got two schmucks like us who can't even stop doing a basketball podcast twice a week, even though we don't know if there's ever going to be basketball in the next, what, six months? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's hooked on it, right? Yeah. Um, I think that this is a period of general reflection for everyone who has time to stop and think about their lives and their responsibilities and I guess just their own trajectory as human beings. But people who love basketball, who've worked so hard to reach the pinnacle of their profession, probably miss it more than anything else and can't wait to get back to it would be my my guess on the situation. Yeah, Kevin. So a couple things. First of all, the only person I've heard uh, address this topic directly was a player telling his agent last week, and I used this in a story, that if this is what retirement is like, I never want to retire, right? So basically, <laughs> he's sitting around bored. I don't know if that means he's sitting around with family members that he didn't want to necessarily spend quite as much time with. I don't know if he misses the lifestyle and the travel or you know, the fun aspects of the NBA life, or he just misses the competition. But I think that what you're really seeing is a lot of you know, likely like kind of early stages of depression, right? It's like the thing that has driven you for years has now been taken away from you and you're trying to cope with it, right? I think that's pretty common. Now, in terms of 
the coach's side, I mean, I think these guys are so addicted to it that their brains are still probably going a mile a minute. I mean, there may have been a, a decompression period, but I think if you're a coach, you're preparing like the playoffs are definitely going to happen. You're probably scouting um, your potential playoff matchups. Uh, you're probably, you know, trying to take care of the kind of quote unquote homework in terms of uh, drawing up plays and other possible ideas that you wouldn't have maybe normally have time for during the regular season. And you're just trying to stay mentally engaged. And you're also probably, frankly, dipping your toes into the draft side of things too, right? You know, you've got some time to watch tape. I can't tell you how many times I've heard NBA coaches say over the years, well, I never have time to watch college tape. You know, I just let the, the front office guys do that. Well, now you got a bunch of really smart coaches sitting around saying, oh yeah, like why don't we fire up some Dayton highlights and, and see what's going on with them? <laughs> um, so that would be sort of my guess on that. In terms of the retirement side though, there's like the kind of the old adage of guys showing up to training camp, you know, when they're like in their mid thirties and they just all of a sudden realize they don't have it anymore. Like they, they can't mm -hmm. turn the corner. They you know, they can't stay in front of their guy. And every year when I go to games in early October and November, there's a guy who's just washed, right? And one guy I remember from a couple <laughs> of years ago, Kevin Martin. Kevin Martin was a really good basketball player, incredible shooter, you know, cheeky, knew how to draw the fouls. But there was one year where I saw him in maybe the second or third game of the season. And I just, I remember G chatting this to a couple of people and just being like, bro, this guy is done. Like he is, he has got nothing left. And I wonder if there could be some guys who are maybe in that stage of their careers, like even Vince Carter, it kind of seemed like his final game, it was, you know, he was handling the closing seconds as if that was going to be the last time he was on a basketball court, potentially. Um, I do wonder if there's guys in that stage who are going to be kind of pushed out the door uh, because of this. And that would be sad. You know, it would be almost a similar feeling to like the, the high schooler who we heard about who didn't get to have his senior year. Uh, or the, mm -hmm. the college guys who are not, you know, or, or Sabrina Ionescu who aren't, who aren't getting that senior year experience. Um, but I could see that being the case um, kind of more than anything else because the pay is really good, you know, and, and the lifestyle is not bad either. No, it's terrific. We all want to be professional basketball players, I think. Um, but this kind of this kind of actually goes. If you can't do that, then you might as well podcast about it. But uh, this kind of goes back to a conversation that I actually had with Pat Connaughton of the Milwaukee Bucks last week that we posted on SB Nation, and it's you know a big chunk of my conversation with Pat was about post-retirement life and how this was just a simulation of it. And Pat is, you know, trying to do a lot of different things outside of basketball, um, started his own real estate development company, etc. But I thought that that was really fascinating. And uh, for him to kind of have that foresight and that awareness of, hey, I'm not going to be playing professional sports forever. I need to prepare for something else. I thought was really insightful and interesting. For sure. And there's lots of NBA guys who have gotten that message, right? I mean, I think that's one thing about this gen generation more than previous generations is like they see the world is bigger than basketball. They're trying to find whether you want to call it a side hustle or a future career or whatever else it might be. I mean, the level of training and internships a lot of these players have gone through through the players associations is pretty incredible. Um, so, you know, I, I think this could be an opportunity for people in that position to pursue those interests and make some progress. Um, much like our listener from overseas who said he was going to start the business plan for his player agency. I wouldn't be surprised at all if there's some players who are thinking, hey, you know, let's let's lay some groundwork here. You know, well, we've got potentially six months to uh, to figure things out. All right. We got a great question here from Wenjo in Singapore. He writes, 
Good day. I trust you both are safe and healthy amid the difficulty of COVID-19. Open floor keeps my sanity and happiness while we deal with working from home and without any games at all here in Singapore. The coronavirus has definitely opened up our eyes on some extreme scenarios. So I thought, yeah, let's get wild with this. Here's my idea. What if for the NBA All-Star game, instead of East versus West or captains, why don't they have it be NBA All-Stars versus the All-Stars of the world? And I'm not talking about international NBA players. I'm talking about international players. They would have to, uh, you know, obviously call up the Spanish League, maybe the Chinese League, Japanese League, whatever else, hand select a group of All-Stars and then bring them to the NBA All-Star game to play the NBA All-Stars. Michael, this is definitely outside of the box. And we've heard a lot of ideas about the globalization of the All-Star game, but I'm not sure I've ever heard this one from Wenjo in Singapore. Are you thumbs up or thumbs down on this? <laughs> I This email gave me a laugh. I mean, uh, if you're talking about taking the very best players who aren't in the NBA and asking them to face LeBron, Kawhi, Giannis, Harden, we've already seen it. It was the 92 Olympics. It was just a systematic bloodbath uh, over and over and over okay. again. I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to play devil's advocate here, Michael. Okay. We just watched your savior, Kemba Walker, get punked in the 2019 FIBA World Cup by a bunch of teams. They finished seventh place, the United States did. Are we Uh so sure that the American athletes are that much better than the international all-star players? And wouldn't you like to give Wenjo the opportunity to, you know, prove it uh, on the court? What do you think? Ben, okay. Let me me answer your, your, your statement with a question here. Can you name me five players who are not in the NBA, <laughs> okay. who would be on this hypothetical team that could that could uh, compete against the best players in the world? Well, here's the sad part. Uh, and this speaks to our own kind of provincialism and exceptionalism here in America. The guys who I would name are like NBA players on drug suspensions who are like b- bouncing around, <laughs> right? So they might not even be the all-stars in their respective leagues, but your point is taken. I guess... I, I'm not sure Wenjo is looking for the most balanced game necessarily. I think he's looking for a celebration of the sport and bringing the community together. Perhaps he's swinging a little bit too big, though. Is, is that what we're getting? Like, would we be better off like doing this for the Rising Stars game, maybe? Where it's like, okay, you know, something with lower stakes. Because I think Wenjo, we t- spend so much time debating about the all-star game, the format, how it should go down. Because deep down, we all kind of really care about it a lot, just randomly. Like, we think it's a big deal. I mean, they've done this captain's thing, and even the Elam ending, everybody got really excited about. Um, There is a certain place in basketball culture for that game. It's such an honor when guys get their first selection. A lot of them break down in tears because it means that much to them, right? So the idea that we're just going to fast-track 12 international players into that game and and throw them up... uh, you know, like meat on the Tiger King show. I, I don't know if <laughs> if that's what we want to do, okay? Um, but I could see them trying to incorporate international all-stars, non-NBA players into the weekend in some capacity. I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to find a compromise here between Michael, your hardline position, and Wenjo's unfulfilled dreams. But going back to my question, can you name one guy well, like I said, it, it would be like O.J. Mayo right now, right? I mean, like, it'd be, it, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, it, it would be guys like that. 
because I, I actually was able to, th- I took about, you know, I took a few minutes and I didn't want to Google anything. And I wanted to see if I could come up with one player who I think would actually be interesting in a game like this. The only player I could think of is Sergio y- Yule? Lull? Yule, yeah, Yule. <laughs> Yule, yes. Uh, drafted, I believe, by the Houston Rockets years ago. He never came to the NBA. He plays for the Spanish national team. He is awesome, and he's a really good combo guard, and they would have really loved to have him these past few seasons. Uh, that's the only guy I could think of, Ben. Well, not like Rudy Fernandez or Sergio Rodriguez or any of those guys? Well, those guys, okay. I mean, are you if, saying are you saying they're not eligible because they've been in the NBA? I those guys did not come into my mind for that reason. Yeah, okay. but also if Rudy Fernandez was going up against Kawhi Leonard, like I just, I mean, whatever, right? Just, well, I think this th- kind of brings it back to this whole exercise being really funny, right? Wendell, I think that if we did this with just a bunch of NBA washouts, which is the the names that we're thinking of. Um, immediately it would be the most depressing version of this game of all time. It's like, you couldn't cut it in the NBA. We sent you back overseas. Now we're bringing you back to pulverize you. I I actually, (laughs) I think some of those guys might not accept the invites uh, simply for their own uh, reputation management. Um, But yeah, Mm -hmm. if you're saying it's guys with no NBA ties whatsoever, well, think about this, Michael. A couple years ago, Luka Doncic could have been in this game. You know, like a, a 17 yeah. or 18 year old Luka Doncic, does that make it worthwhile? No, that's that's fair. And I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking about when I, I was probably like, yeah, there are some prospects who are teenagers who will be in the NBA someday who are international, who um, would make this really interesting. But those guys would still just get just completely obliterated. <laughs> and I don't think it would be a very interesting game. At well, all. Here's what I think we should do. Uh, Wenjo, first of all, you should watch the Nike Hoop Summit because it has this exact premise with high school players. There's a world team. There's a USA team. The USA team is often very, very loaded because Nike pulls a lot of strings for this event. And the world team often has future NBA players. The list of guys goes all the way back to Dirk Nowitzki who have played in that event. They actually play that game in Portland, Oregon. I went to it for years. It's really fun and entertaining um, and often very competitive. Sometimes you'll even see the world team break out zone defenses just to screw with the USA team. It kind of makes it funnier. It's an added wrinkle. Um, But why don't we just take that event and do that for the Rising Stars event, right? So we just have the best under-21 prospects from around the world, the future Luka Doncic of the world, play against our Rising Stars team. And I mean, nobody watches that game anyways. If there's a million dunks, no one's going to care. Maybe we give some of those international players a taste of the NBA lifestyle. That actually could be dangerous. Maybe we want to keep them in a, you know, isolated in a hotel room, maybe, you know, don't, don't let them see a little bit too much of the NBA lifestyle at that young of an age. Um, what do you think? That's pretty interesting. So hypothetically here, there would be international players on the NBA team, correct? There could be if they had already made it to the NBA, right? Okay, so like Luca would be on the NBA team just feasting on his former teammates and protégés. Right, like, or if he had a younger brother, you know, it'd be perfect. Or yeah. like if there was a ninth Hernan Gomez brother, we'd just bring him in and he's on the foreign team, right? I mean, why not? I like this. This is a good compromise. Man. All right, we're, we're getting there. All right, Wenjo, hopefully we satisfied your craving there for globalization. I love it. Bill writes, hi, Ben, and also hi to Michael the Leaping Pod Pina. 
I have been listening to the show ever since I moved to California in 2018 from Michigan and thoroughly enjoyed it. I know you and I share the same passion for nature, Lego, and the connection of Michigan sports. Wow, Bill. It sounds like you're a brother from another mother here. Um, He says, I also listen to this show as my weekly drive to see my girlfriend from San Jose to Sacramento. When she rides with me, she always falls asleep with the show. Clear evidence of your guys' soothing voice. Well, perfect. <laughs> Glad we could help. He writes, anyway, I work in healthcare and managing several frontline departments that are fighting COVID, including ICU, hospitalists, and pulmonary. The pod has been keeping me sane and getting me through some tough times recently. I want to thank you for bringing much-needed positivity to these dark times. Bill, thank you and everybody you're working with. Hang in there, man. His question is, You briefly mentioned the potential fit of some players from previous decades in the modern NBA. Who do you think would be the most improved in terms of their status from their era to the current era? Growing up in China, I'm naturally a Yao Ming fan. I imagine he'd be pretty dominant in the current system with his ability to stretch. So would uh, Arvidas Sabonis too, right? I'd love to hear your analysis and arguments. So Michael, let's start with those players. And if you have other candidates, let me know. How do you think these big-bodied centers like Yao Ming and Arvidas Sabonis um, would do in the modern era? And I think with Sabonis, it's tricky because the version who came over was slower and heavier than the young version of Sabonis. And there's a real case like the young version of Sabonis would just be a monster in today's NBA game, right? Yeah, I think offensively they would be really intriguing and and really effective. And you could even look at uh, Arita Sabonis' son and what he's doing. And he's an all-star right now, and he doesn't have any stretch. He's kind of more of a traditional post player. With he's got some touch, and he can you know operate from the elbows and find cutters and that sort of thing. Uh, But defensively is kind of where it gets a little tricky, just because how how predominantly the pick and roll has kind of taken form in today's game. So I think guys would just be hunted mercilessly. uh, And I guess you could just, I could imagine Yao staying on the floor in like a drop coverage for over 30 minutes a game, but it's, it it could get ugly. Yeah. I hate to say this, Bill. I would be worried about Yao on the defensive end too. I think he would be the type of guy where once it comes to the playoff time, his minutes would get cut pretty substantially because uh, everybody values the versatility, covering ground, and that aspect of things on the defensive end. And I think that, um, you know, speed and fleet of foot was not his great strength. I mean, he had so many amazing abilities as a player, but that wasn't one of them. And so it's almost a situation where um, he's lucky he didn't come along 10 years later, right? I mean, I think that he came around at a, a pretty good time for him to maximize uh, you know his utility to an organization. Mm-hmm. He carried some really, really good Rockets teams for a number of years, racked up individual honors like All Stars, and unfortunately, you know he, he ran into the the lower leg problems, the foot problems late in his career, right before things started to drastically change. So we don't really know. It's all hypothetical here. But I do remember watching late career Yao because he was in a playoff series against the Blazers, and. I was already starting to feel a level of sympathy for him. You know, I I know people were really shocked and disheartened when he retired. It just seemed like it was such an act of labor. Every time he was was running up and down the court, trying to move around, his body just wasn't where it needed to be. And so from that standpoint, I was almost relieved when he retired to a certain degree. Um, I hadn't followed him that closely, but it was one of those situations where it's like, yeah, go out on top, right? Like, don't put yourself through years of agony uh, for diminishing returns here, uh, especially because he's such an important figure for his entire country. So for me, his career 
almost played out the way it needed to, right? If he could have had better health, that would have been great. But I feel like the timeline worked out okay for him. Did you have any other nominations on this one, Michael? Yeah, I have a few. Um, The first player who popped into my head was George Gervin. And I say George Gervin because I've been reading a lot about NBA history over the past couple weeks, just books that I have in my apartment. And there was this one anecdote that I, I read about how during the playoffs with the San Antonio Spurs, uh, their strategy was usually to take Gervin and then just kind of isolate him against the weakest defender on the opposing team as often as they could. And it, it uh, the obvious parallel there is what the Houston Rockets do with James Harden. So if you were to take George Gervin and kind of put him in this era where he was able to access his range, great shooter, um, and uh, let him isolate on guys who couldn't, stick with him and also would not be allowed to hand check. I think he could average like easily over 40 points a game. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you think he's going to average more than any modern player. So you think just like on a pure skill basis and physical tools basis, he is more gifted than any modern player. I think that if they deployed the exact same strategy that yes, um, absolute freak incredible player one of the most underrated players all-time greats offensively in nba history if you were to plop him in with these rules and with this much spacing uh yeah i think he would i don't want to say easily average over 40 but he would be virtually unstoppable wow do you want this just so that harden can isolate even more and average 40 points a game (laughs) is that you just like need a a pace i'm antagonizing yes i'm I'm hoping mike d'antoni is listening i'm just pushing him needling him to try to get push it over the edge that's amazing who else you got uh so i have pete maravich And it kind of goes along the same lines of just here's a guy who was not able to really take advantage of his ridiculous range in the way that uh, we would have liked to see. I mean, he played in college with really out of three-point line, and he still averaged over 44 points a game every year when he was at LSU, which is really, really wild. I mean, there's a lot of conversation right now on the internet of who the best college players were ever. Um which is something we don't need to get into because your boy Michael Jordan was voted number one, even though that is obvious lunacy. Yeah, I mean, uh, when Magic Johnson comes out and sides against Michael Jordan publicly, you know that your poll has screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Magic got the answer right. It's Kareem. Uh, yeah. And even the diehard Jordan Stan over here can admit that. Okay, I'm really proud of you for that. Um, so Pete Maravich, if he was in the NBA now... Uh, just able to let loose off the bounce. Uh, You know, there's probably some people who are like, he would be Jimmer Fredette. I think he would be just a phenomenal dynamo. I mean, looking at how Trey Young plays offensively, I think we would see some of that with Pete Maravich, if not more entertaining and more thrilling. Uh, Pete Maravich was just a guy who needed the Instagram and Twitter era too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he his legacy as a player has already really strong. There's multiple biographies about him. Um, he has this legendary spot in in the history of the game, uh, and it's just crazy college stats, which I think one of the things that identify him more than any other. But uh, if he had the benefits of of being a modern athlete, it's pretty insane to think about like how famous he would have become. 
because his skill level and his, his ability was just, you know, uh, sky high. A couple names I've thought of. I mean, I, it's an obvious one, but Shaq. Um, I think that if he had come up in the modern era, more, more focus on fitness, getting up and down the court and everything else, I would like to think that his career would have played out a little bit differently. His self-care in terms of his body would play out differently. And then he would just be this crazy mismatch nightmare from everyone. And there was a level of skill there too when it came to dribbling and, and pushing the ball up the court, passing every once in a while. And just the type of centers who are in the NBA right now would have no chance. So he would just be sort of this cross current, similar to like what an Embiid is uh, at this point. But, uh, you know, to me, even more gifted. But better. Yeah, better. Yeah. Better and more athletic and uh, more dominant, right? So I don't go, know. B- go, go back and watch Shaq when he was on the Orlando Magic, if you don't know what we're talking about, because some of the stuff that he could do when he was more fleet of foot, like just completely unstoppable. Forget about like when he was the most dominant player ever with the Lakers and just you could not handle him uh, without a double team. Um, like those times when he was with the Orlando Magic, when he was just a super freak athlete going coast to coast, diving for loose balls like that Shaq is one of the best players ever just in my in my own imagination. For sure. And I just feel like the modern culture of like everybody's locked in 12 months a year, taking care of your body, nutrition, you know, all that kind of stuff could have had a positive impact on him and taken his career even higher than it already was, which was excellent. A couple other names real quick. Steve Nash and Allen Iverson. And I think Steve Nash has been the subject of a lot of Twitter conversations this week because of this idea of volume in terms of how often was he shooting? Was he too unselfish? Uh, He was such an incredible shooter if he had taken the number of shots that Steph had taken or if he had had like a Trey Young type green light. What does his career look like? How do his teams function? Maybe he needed to be slightly more selfish. And I think if he comes up 10 years later, the hard wiring of of pass first and just the spectacular playmaker he was for his teammates is probably a little bit lessened just from like a cultural basketball culture standpoint, right? Like he was still kind of growing up and going to college in an era where guys like Stockton were among the most revered point guards in the NBA. And if point guards are more empowered as scorers as he's coming up and he just starts to be a little bit more ingrained as a scorer like he started to later in his career just slightly um i think the sky would have been the limit for them i'm not the world's big biggest steve nash fan but he was an insanely good shooter you know 50 40 90 type guy from Mm -hmm. every single uh, place on the court three-point range um and you know the impact that he had stretching defenses with his passing i think would have just been amplified if he was more of a high volume three-point shooting threat as well so that's one guy and then with iverson it's just an idea of like okay if lou williams looks this good in 2020 (laughs) compared to what he looked like in 2015 or 2012 right then what does iverson look like in 2020 the iverson one well first i want to start with nash because i think it's fascinating that you're trying to take away what is arguably his best uh, quality, which is like his his, his selflessness. Come um, on, Michael, don't put words in my mouth. I'm not trying to take it away. I'm just trying to tone it that's down. That's exactly slightly. what you're doing. <laughs> um. So yeah, you trying to just cut Nash down at the knees was just it's uncalled for, and uh, I won't stand for it. Look, I'm just but, saying, like instead of devoting his entire life to charity, which we all know people who have done that, <laughs> they move overseas to do the Peace Corps and never come back, right? 
All I'm saying is come back a little bit, right? You know, just engage in the capitalistic system just slightly and see where it takes you because he's just the type of guy who could be both a Peace Corps volunteer and a millionaire. That's all I'm saying. So, sure. <laughs> I follow. Um, Iverson is, I, I kind of go the exact other direction with you on that one. I don't think Iverson would have had the type of career that he did if he was in the modern era. He just, if you want to have the ball as often as you, as he did, and you can't shoot threes, particularly off the bounce, you're just going to have a tough time. And I think you could make the case that if you surrounded him with even more spacing and his, his driving lanes were even wider that it wouldn't matter. But this guy was like, he can't shoot like Lou Williams could shoot, can shoot. So I think that, 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 that kind of would be to his detriment a little bit. I think that he would have the toughest time adjusting, uh, of, of sort of big time stars for a few reasons. First of all, the coachability aspect, right. Uh, and the idea that you're going to be reprogrammed, and no mid-range shots, uh, efficiency super, you know, is super important. Uh, you mm-hmm. have to cut out the low percentage long twos from your diet, kind of no matter what. And, you know, taking care of yourself too, uh, year round. I think that's an issue. Though All those are concerns that I would have. On the flip side, his finishing ability, ability to take contact, ability to draw contact, his sheer speed off the bounce, acceleration, bag of moves, ability to get to the rim, all that stuff was just crazy elite in an era where there was no room to operate because you just had oster tags in every direction. You know, it's just all these mm-hmm. just giant, big body, lumbering centers screwing things up for a guy off the dribble. So there would be adjustments. I'm not necessarily sure that he would handle the transition perfectly, but it is one guy I'd like to watch. And before we get off Iverson. We should say that he led the league in scoring four times and averaged over 30 points per game four times and is just a fireball of a person. So, so you're already, wanna... you're already regretting your, um, your dissing of him? Is that what you're saying? No, I just think he's, he's perfect in the era in which he thrived, is what I would say. Okay, a man of his own time. Do you have any other nominations? So I do have one, but I feel like you will roast me if I say it. Uh-oh. Should, should I still no, say it? No, you should definitely say it. Which Celtic <laughs> is it going to be? Larry Bird? Bill McKinnon? Wow. That is that literally, yeah, you guessed it on the first try. Um, so my, my, my case for Bird I did guess just, it? Oh, my God. You guessed it, you guessed it on the first try. So yeah, here, I Michael, this whole... I, I've been meaning to give you this speech, okay? Um, okay. No, it's, all, it. it's all fun and games when you get the nickname. <laughs> You know, it's nice. You've got a little pod clout now. Everybody's really liking. But one thing I've learned over the years of doing this is that you really have to be careful when it comes to self-parody because now everybody just thinks I'm this Lego-loving dork who walks around outdoors, (laughs) smells the trees all day long. I have to lean into it. I have to play along with it. But if every single question is answered with the answer Jason Tatum or Larry Bird, I hate to break it to you, you're going to become that guy, Michael. Are you okay with that? I'm just being authentic to myself, Ben. That is <laughs> all this is. I, I, I can't apologize for it. Um, all right, give me the so, Larry Bird breakdown. Who's he guarding? <laughs> I, yeah, okay, you can't immediately come at me with the defense when you had Steve Nash out here. But... Yeah, defense would be a little bit of an issue, even though he did work his ass off on that end, and I think he's a little bit underrated, even though his athleticism is 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 left for wanting. 
Um, I just think is the uh, is the beer diet going to stay over the summer? Are we still drinking all the beer over the summer, or is that no? Hey, that yeah, that's another thing. You're smoking cigs in the locker room at halftime, and being around guys who are doing that would not impact him as much. And also, medical science has advanced, so his back injuries would presumably be fixed, and he'd have a much more longer career, which is wonderful. This is hilarious. Um, I'm actually now picturing like you know Giannis when he came in. Like his physique was more bird-like, you know, when Giannis was like 17 or 18, you know, kind of more just like random guy off the street physique. Now I'm picturing bird on the Giannis diet of like five years straight of just like muscle additions. Can you picture like a 245 pound jacked version of Larry Bird who's just in the gym 12 hours a day doing the LeBron uh, Instagram lives from the gym at you know six thirty in the morning. Hey guys, I'm just racking stuff up. He's singing along to his favorite country songs. Can you picture this version <laughs> of Bird or not? You mean a guy who didn't spend his uh, off seasons instead paving driveways around French Lake, Indiana? Yeah, I could. Him jacked would just be the best player in the history of basketball <laughs> without a doubt. It's like there's no argument there. Um, the, the, I mean, the primary reason I had this is just the, the, the three-point shooting and what I think he was robbed of being able to do in an era where that thing, that three-point shooting was not, like, it, it was just not a, it, I don't want to say it wasn't acceptable, but it wasn't nearly what it is today, of course. I mean, if you had Larry Bird, who is widely regarded as one of the better pure shooters in the history of the sport... Uh, if he was allowed to take you know, seven, eight, nine a game, I mean, statistically and just his impact in a more spaced out game in the half court, given his ability to pass, it's just it's mind blowing what he would be able to accomplish. Michael, did you ever play Capture the Flag when you were a kid? I did. I love that game. So, you know, when you go across the line, all of a sudden you go from your safety zone to the other team's side. And if they tag you, you're done. So your stress Mm -hmm. level goes from like zero to like 300 immediately. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm on the other side. That's how NBA players in the early 1980s treated the three point line. It was like if they went behind that three point arc, it's like, oh, wow, this is like foreign (laughs) territory. What do we do? Like they just didn't even know how to react. And I mentioned that because I was actually watching your guy, Larry, and the Celtics play against Jordan in the uh, in the playoffs, the, the game that Jordan had 63. And it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. First of all, Bird's hand was screwed up, so he wasn't shooting that well. But even like the commentators, when he did t- attempt a three-pointer, it was like this, the, the world was on fire. It was like, oh, my Strike God. Strike him down. <laughs> yeah, a three-point attempt by Larry Bird. And it's like, well, yeah, he's an incredible shooter, and he's about to win the three-point contest in a few years. Chill out. It's okay. He can take it. Maybe he should be taking 10 more of these. It would make a lot more sense in the offense yeah. they're running right now. So it was just a different time and place. And I think uh, a lot of the the great shooters from the 80s and you know, even like the early and mid nineties, it would be pretty cool to see like Dan Marley, right. In, in NBA in modern NBA, how many, how many threes does he get up? Those kinds of guys for sure are awesome answers. I'm not trying to compare Dan Marley and, and Larry Bird, by the way, I'm just saying, you know, anyone who, who could shoot the rock, uh, for their time period coming to the modern NBA would be fun to watch. Yeah, my heart skipped a beat when you started to compare those two, but well, I've recovered. Don't worry. If you ever won a title as like the eighth guy off the Boston bench, you'd be saying he should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> uh, all right. We got one final question here from Mathis. He writes, 
as a longtime listener, I want to express my appreciation and gratitude to Michael for doing an absolutely tremendous job on the podcast. I agree, Michael. You're, you're, you're nailing it. Uh, he g- continues to say, it's been a pleasure to listen. It's helping me and many others uh, in, a, in providing a welcome diversion in these demanding times that we live in. It feels like news and social media are over flooding my mind with constant COVID-19 news, and I feel the need for some positive escapism, so I'm glad you guys are still talking about basketball. Thank you. We're glad to do it, Mathis. It's, it's providing the same thing for us. He goes on to say, here's my question. With the rise of platforms like YouTube, Netflix, online media, and the decline of traditional print media, hey, Mathis, come on now. Print media is still holding it down. <laughs> WashingtonPost.com slash sports. He continues, there are a lot of people on the internet who are playing 2K, reacting to highlights or talking about basketball in general, and some I find are very knowledgeable. Not everyone, but some. I'd like to know if you two watch or have ever watched NBA YouTubers, what you think of them, and how sports coverage has changed for you over the last 20 years, whether it's interaction with players, speed of providing the newspapers with new material, style of writing, new requirements for your job, etc. So he's got kind of a two-part question, Michael. Are you into the NBA YouTube scene in terms of guys who are breaking down games on YouTube? And what have you noticed are the biggest changes about the job or the industry uh, over the last 10 or 20 years? I I hope I don't offend anyone here, but I didn't even know that that was a thing. People just I get what what is like what is an NBA YouTuber? I <laughs> maybe I'm showing my age here, but Ben, did you are you aware of this subculture? You don't subscribe to my channel? <laughs> Seriously, we've been podcasting together for months, and I can't even get a few plays on my YouTube channel. Um, I it's a it's a disparate community, Michael. I mean, there's like I'm sure you've seen a B-ball breakdown, right? Where he'll do, uh, Coach mm. Nick will will kind of you know, recap games, or he'll show you certain play types. Um, you can also get kind of X and O's analysis. And there's certain people who almost provide like a level of commentary to game action. Uh, almost as they're playing uh, of course there's other guys who are just like doing video games like you know live streaming their video games on there and and people watch that i wouldn't necessarily paint it with one particular brush i just think there's a lot of general nba content on youtube there's other people who will uh, almost do like what your colleague at espionation does seth rosenthal where it's like you pick a topic and mm-hmm. you just use youtube to explain it rather than writing the article right so uh, you know, maybe it's a famous game from the past. Maybe it's some quirky thing that happened 25 years ago, and you're just kind of telling the story as you're talking to a camera. You know, splicing in graphics and video here and there. Um, I take it you don't care at all. So, great question from us. Glad I glad I no. brought this. <laughs> I want to, yeah, real quick. I want to shout out Seth for uh, everything he does, and also Beef History, which is incredible. I didn't even like really conflate the two when I was thinking about NBA and YouTube because when I watch YouTube, it's more like for highlights and just old playoff games and that sort of thing. Like, I don't really go there to hear people's opinions on things. Um, that's just me, but it's cool if people do that. Yeah, I also am not spending a ton of time on YouTube for NBA content. If people kind of make the transition from YouTube to the more general media, or if they're a general media member who winds up putting content onto YouTube, I'm more likely to see it. I guess, Mathis, I'm locked in pretty much to the circle of newsbreakers in the NBA, uh, leading uh, analysts of NBA coverage from a written perspective, Um, the major NBA podcasts. I'm certainly consuming those on a regular basis. Um, And then if there are video breakdowns or highlight packages that people share on social media, particularly Twitter, 
uh, but now also Instagram as well. Like I'm likely to come across those. I would say that uh, other sources still to me are kind of quote unquote periphery, but I realize that there's lots of people who watch on those, um, uh, on those, uh, networks. And so if you're finding stuff you like, like keep, keep going with it. Um, to me, it would just be kind of a lower priority in my overall consumption diet. Um, and I would actually encourage people, you know, once the NBA starts back up is like, really think about where you're getting all that stuff from, because the number of incredible, just pure print writers or guys who are writing, uh, stories for digital outlets, like the athletic, uh, the beat writers at local, uh, newspapers, etc., is excellent. The NBA has a very, very deep roster of those kinds of guys. I mean, you've got 50, um, men and women, probably at least who are, I would grade like an A at their job in terms of providing that stuff. And so much of what we're consuming now, it's like the pull quote that gets turned into an Instagram graphic, right? Uh, or it mm-hmm. might be something that gets pulled out onto hoops hype. And I think for me, the most rewarding thing has been just kind of, especially over the last couple of years, I've been forcing myself, you know, go back and read the source material, right? Like not necessarily every single gamer from every single game, right? But if an, if a local newspaper writer or somebody from The Athletic is putting together a good feature on a key player who's breaking out or a rookie or something like that, you know, read those and try to be super diligent about it because otherwise um, you're selling yourself short and you're just sort of skimming along at the surface rather than diving in more deeply. Um, And that's really where I find that I learned the most uh, as a consumer. Uh, I would say that actually has changed to answer his second question from the last 10 or 20 years. The proliferation of media is what I noticed to be the biggest difference. When I first started in 2007, Granted, I was in a small market, but there was hardly anybody in the locker room. And if you look at the Blazers locker room media beat coverage now compared to then, it's significantly larger. And if you look at the size of like the beat media uh, teams around like the Celtics or the Lakers or now even the Clippers, they've just swelled to the point where it's very, very difficult to... Um, you know, get anything exclusive. It's very difficult, you know, in some situations for guys to even conduct their post-game press conferences. Now, some guys have to do a, a press conference rather than a scrum after every single game. So that's one of the very biggest changes. And I think in some cases that's been good because it's created more opportunities for young writers to sneak into the industry and to build their name and uh, get themselves into larger outlets. And I would actually say probably Michael and myself are both examples of that. I think in some cases it's bad because, Uh, there are people there who are, you know, for lack of a better phrase, clout chasing, like they're not necessarily trying to become full-time writers. They're trying to maybe even be personalities or they're just trying to go viral or whatever else. And in some cases, I think that could be a distraction and and make the coverage and, um, you know, the, the end product of those interviews, um, of lower quality or more difficult to, to, uh, take place. So, there's mm-hmm. pros and cons, but that, those are some of the changes I've seen. Michael, do you have anything to add? No, I mean, this is a really uh, fascinating and I think helpful question. It's it's also a really difficult one to kind of wrap your arms around. I think you did a really good job in answering it. And I would agree with a lot of the things that you just said. I mean, I've been doing this for less time than you have been, but I've also noticed that locker rooms are uh, a little denser now than they were when I started. And that just speaks to all the different outlets that are uh, correctly, in a lot of cases, getting press credentials and having opportunities to speak with players and coaches and ask coaches questions. I would say the number one thing for me is just how 
how it forces you to uh, or motivates you to think of original and unique ideas because I think a lot of this industry is is steeped in groupthink, unfortunately. And so a lot of people are writing the same things on any given day. And so if you can find a super unique original idea and you can report it out, I think you are adding to the conversation. And sometimes you aren't even adding to the conversation. Sometimes you're just creating your own conversation off to the side that is is worthwhile and worth having. Um, so I don't even know if I answered the question, but those are just kind of some of my thoughts about it. I mean, to give just two real quick examples, like... Last year, I wrote a story for Sports Illustrated, actually, um, about just how different head coaches across the NBA use their timeouts and timeout strategy and which ones call the most and which ones call the fewest. And I ended up interviewing almost every head coach in the NBA for that story. And I mean, no one was really asking for, for that, but I think it was beneficial uh, for uh, for myself, selfishly, just learning about it because it's something that has always interested me. But I hope it w- informed readers about why coaches call timeouts when they do and what's going through their head. And then another one yeah, that's kind of a lot. Let's no, put go a, ahead. Let me put that into context. And Mathis, this is what I'm saying. That's the type of story. If you're a hardcore basketball fan or you're a basketball fan who, who's really trying to like learn even more that you should be diving into because there's always going to be the story out there, LeBron versus Jordan, right? There's always going to be different low hanging fruit type topics of, uh, you know, who are the best players of all time or who, you know, power rankings, which teams have the best chance to win the title this year. Like that content will always exist. And there's more people doing that type of content by far than there was five or 10 years ago, because everybody wants to engage in those debates. And so when you do see someone, you know, like, especially putting in extra legwork from a reporting standpoint, writing that story, that story might not be the most click story of that day, right? I mean, it could be like LeBron shirtless in his, uh, you know, uh, in, in his gym, rapping along to whatever else, like that Instagram video, you embed that onto a post, it might get more clicks than a well thought out story. But what I'm saying is put the onus on yourself as a consumer to seek out the kind of content that you want to see and support the kind of writers who are doing it, because it will make a difference. And, um, uh, anyway, I, I think that's one of Michael's big virtues as a writer is, is finding those kinds of stories. Continue before I compliment you anymore. No, I actually, the, the other example I was going to give is uh, the uh, a story I actually wrote for uh, your current employer, Ben, uh, the Washington Post last year um, about, it was basically it birthed from an idea that I had just in watching basketball and watching the amount that I do and thinking about why no teams or wondering if teams did have ball handling coaches on their staffs because NBA coaching staffs are huge now and they seem to be growing and skill development is so important and handling the ball is so important now in a league where if you are just like a spot-up shooter and you don't know what to do when someone closes out on you, you're kind of useless, particularly in the playoffs. So I went around and reported that out and found, uh, you know, God Sham God, who works for the Dallas Mavericks, and he was kind of hired uh, to be a ball handling coach, and he is the only real one in the NBA. And since, uh, uh, you know, he was hired, he's gone on to do other things in that organization on the coaching staff. He's not just a ball handling coach anymore. But those types of stories and those types of angles, I feel like, have real value and just informing people about the NBA and what they're watching. 
And for sure, and you're probably getting other people around the league, whether it's other coaching staffs or uh, players thinking like, huh, why don't I have one? And I think that there are players, you know, over the summer who are really focusing on that aspect. And that's another thing too. Mm -hmm. It's where like you may have a player who has his own kind of quote unquote personal trainer and all they work on is ball handling for a given summer. Like that's the main emphasis of the summer. Then you come back into the regular season and that role is not filled by any coach on his staff. It doesn't make a ton of sense, right? So can we envision an NBA in a few years where the pace is even faster, more and more guys are asked to be playing in isolation or, or spread situations where ball handling is even more important of a priority. And now NBA teams are ramping up their ball handling coaches. I could see that. That would seem like a pretty natural evolution and development. Um, so again, it, it could be a story that you wrote there where uh, you're maybe even potentially a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, Personally, no disrespect to the YouTubers. That's the kind of content I want, Michael. Okay, G give me that kind of uh, you know merging of X and O's and uh, trends and you know real life interviews. And that's the stuff that is kind of my sweet spot as a consumer. And I hope that that remains for a lot of people too. Um, all right, we've come to the end of another episode of Open Floor, guys. Thanks so much for all the questions. We had another 15 questions we didn't get to. We'll roll those over to next week. Can't wait to dive in. Michael, they could find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Uh, Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter, at Ben Golliver. Guys, check out my Washington Post newsletter. Go to my Twitter page. You can subscribe for it. It's free weekly. Um, it's still cranking out even during the coronavirus crisis. All right, Michael. Until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.